The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Good to see all of your faces this morning. Wonderful to be together. Would you join me in prayer one more time before we open God's Word? Father, we do know that we need your presence among us. It is wonderful to be together, but Lord, we need you to be in our midst. We need you to send your spirit to work through your word that it would take its effectual work in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, that we would be drawn closer to you. I pray in our study this morning, as we look at Genesis 3 and that first sin and the first fall, Lord God, that we would see our own frailty and our weakness but even more that we would see your grace. So help us to see you in your work of salvation, of redemption, in the pages of Scripture this morning, and to be able to apply that to our lives. And so we commit this time to you. We ask for you to work and move and have your way among us, be in our midst, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take a seat, and in your Bibles, if you would go ahead and turn to Genesis 3. So we continue working our way through the book of Genesis, this book of beginnings, And we saw in chapter one, God's creation, everything that he had made. And we read in chapter one and verse 31 that everything he made was very good. Everything that God made was very good. He created man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he gave them the land to tend. And this was a gracious command. It wasn't God cracking the whip on them, telling them to get to work. No, work was a delight. Exercise dominion and multiply and fill the earth. Adam and Eve are in perfect marital harmony. Imagine that. And that's where, really, we left off last week with Seth taking us through Genesis 2, God's perfect plan from the very beginning. Well, if you're familiar with the layout of Scripture, 
then you're probably aware that Genesis 3 is where the wheels fall off for humanity. Not for God. God still has his plan. God still knows what he's doing. But Genesis 3 now is where things begin to go awry. We're going to jump right in this morning, and we're going to be tackling this entire chapter. And we're going to see it really in three parts. So we're going to spend a fair bit of time in the first six verses, and we're going to see the deceptiveness of sin. We're going to see the deceptiveness of sin in these first six verses. And then in verses 7 through 20, we're going to see how this sin has an impact upon everything that, that we see, that we relate to, the impact of sin. And then finally, we're going to take a look and see how God has grace that covers over all of that sin. So first off, we read in verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? As we first are working through this deceptiveness of sin, I want you to see a pattern that we have in these opening verses, this pattern for temptation that then leads to sin. It's right here in our text, and I hope that as we work through it, you might start to see, oh, that in part or in whole is present in my life as well. The first thing that we see as the serpent comes to the woman and asks this question, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The first step in this pattern is a diminished provision, a diminished provision. The serpent is crafty. The serpent takes these words and spins them in such a way that that's not really what God said. It's not really what God had communicated. If you look back to chapter 2 and verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. I want you to understand that. I want you to grab hold of that. This is gracious provision. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Now the serpent comes to the woman and he, he takes this spin on those words. Did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God said, eat of every tree. Surely you may eat except one. And then the woman responds, hearing 
the spin that the serpent has put on the words of God in this diminished provision, the woman responds in verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. You kind of get this as, as I read it, this ho-hum. What God said was, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And what the woman says we may eat of the fruit of the trees. This diminished provision. God had given them so much, but the woman listening to the speech of the servant, now at this point, she has started her departure from the word of God that was spoken to her. At this point, she has started a departure from the word of God that was spoken directly to her. And you might look at that and think, well, that's small. That seems so insignificant. But nonetheless, it's a departure. And that one step leads to another step, to another step, until there's wholesale rejection of God's word, which is what we'll end up seeing eventually. Before we leave this first point of the diminished provision of all that that God had said they could have and they could freely eat, I want us to think if, if there's any tendency in our own lives of diminishing the provision of God, of everything that he has given, of everything that he has provided, of all that he has permitted. Think on what God has provided for you. We spoke some about this in our community group on Thursday night. Somehow we've become further detached from recognizing God's provision. For Adam and Eve, they would look around and they would see everything as coming from the hand of God. Oh, those animals, God spoke those, and poof, there they were. The sun and the moon and the stars, all of those things, God spoke into existence. The food that I have to eat, it came miraculously. By the word of God, he spoke, and it came to be. Everything that I have has come from God. But today, we take so much for granted, or we assume too many provisions. This is just the way that things are. We, we have these things. The food on our tables, even to the tables themselves, think about it, even down to the molecular level, the, the things that tables are made of, God made all of that, and that is evidence of his provision for us. For you. But not just material provision. We can think about all of that material provision that has come from God, but there's spiritual provision as well. This is how Peter in his second epistle says it. In chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, He writes, his divine power, that is God's, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
all things. What is not included in that? It's pretty broad. All things. God has granted all things that pertain to life and to godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. All of this that God has provided, just for life in general, but also for godliness. God has given these great promises to us, precious and very great promises, that we, through those promises, are partakers of the divine nature, that God dwells within us, and that we have fellowship with him, and that through his provision, we have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God has granted all of that to us. Do you recognize the magnitude of God's provision? Or do you just diminish it? Do you take it for granted? Do you assume it? Do you fail to acknowledge the goodness of God in what he has provided? Well, this perspective of diminished provision that first comes through the words of the serpent, and then Eve follows suit as well, it then naturally leads to a view of magnified prohibition. You following along? A diminished provision. So all that God has given is made smaller, and then a magnified prohibition where God has set limits that becomes much bigger in our view. And this is what we see Eve do. Verse 3, let's read what she says. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, ho-hum, diminished provision, verse 2, but verse 3, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So far, so good. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Did you catch that? Neither shall you touch it. Eve, where did you get that from? You can eat of every tree of the garden, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Nowhere did God say anything about touching it. Neither shall you touch it. But Eve, in diminishing the gracious provision of God, she is also now magnifying the prohibition of God. She adds to God's word and says something that God never said. Neither shall you touch it. This did not come from the word of God. And the focus is less and less on what God has provided and more and more on what God has prohibited. 
Think about this. Have, have you ever picked up a pair of binoculars to look at something, maybe in the distance, but then you recognize there's a, there's a tree that's too close in front of you? And you, you take these binoculars and you put them up and all you see is tree bark. That's the kind of lens that Eve is looking through here. She's magnifying. She's making so much greater what God has restricted, what God has prohibited. All that she can see is what God has limited. And so this then naturally leads to the third step from diminished provision to magnified prohibition, and third is a minimized penalty. Notice what the serpent says to Eve in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. A minimized penalty. Here is this crafty serpent beguiling Eve, deceiving her, changing her focus away from what God actually said to a distorted view of God's word where little bits are mixed and matched and this is left off and and that's added in, a distortion of God's word and now a direct contradiction of God's word. God said that when you eat of it, you will surely die. The serpent tells Eve, you will not surely die. The serpent has been walking Eve along this path, making less of what God has provided, making more of what he has prohibited, And now the penalty is dismissed. Oh, you don't need to pay attention to that. That's not true. God's word isn't valid. No, not here, not in this case, not at this time. The serpent directly contradicts God and Eve entertains the serpent's ideas. The penalty is is minimized. The serpent goes on saying, not only will you not die, but if you don't eat, you're missing out. If you don't eat, you're missing out on what could be yours. If you do eat, the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. What a distortion, a contradiction of God's word. And church, this is my hope that for us, we don't minimize the penalty of sin. That we don't, in our own lives, minimize the penalty of sin. Satan wants you to be ignorant of his devices. And this one is key. The minimizing of the penalty for sin. 
In Psalm 84, verse 10, the psalmist there writes, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I would rather be a doorkeeper. I would rather be in the lowest place, have the worst job in God's house, in his presence, than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And do you remember what the author of Hebrews says about Moses deciding to leave Pharaoh's house? In Hebrews 11, it was by faith that Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. If we minimize the the penalty of sin, of disobedience to God's word, we think, well, I want to live in the tents of wickedness. I want to live among Pharaoh in his house. These pleasures of sin, fleeting though they might be, they're there, they're real, they're present, and I want to enjoy them. But Moses, Moses sets a wonderful example for us in saying, no, I would rather leave Pharaoh's house. I would rather be mistreated with God's people and be in right standing with God and in right relationship with God than to enjoy these fleeting pleasures of sin. They're there, but they're passing. And the penalty is enduring And so Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to the reward. Church, do you understand how greatly our Savior suffered as a penalty for sin? Not his own sin, but my sin and your sin, that it cost him his life? that he was beaten, that he was bruised, that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he bled on the cross, that he was mocked, that he was tormented, that he was laid in a borrowed tomb. And all of that is the penalty that he even more so suffered the wrath of God as he hung on the cross, that God poured out the wrath that that was for our sin, that we should receive, that should be poured out and directed on us, but instead was directed toward Jesus. Don't make the mistake of minimizing the penalty of sin. But this is the pattern. The pattern of temptation that comes from the serpent. And now as Eve finds herself caught up in this, influenced by it, she acts as a result of her conversation with the serpent. And we see this in verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes 
And she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now I ask you, was Eve wrong in her assessment? It was good for food, delight to the eyes, desire to make one wise. It was fruit. You could eat it. It was nice to look at. There's no arguing that. Eve liked the look of it. Would it make her wise concerning good and evil? Yes, it would. Do you see what's missing from the equation? What has Eve failed to factor in to this problem? It's good for food. It's a delight to the eyes. And it'll make me wise, knowing good and evil. What did God say about it? Don't eat. God said, don't eat of it. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but do not eat of the fruit of this tree. She failed to take into consideration God's word, what God said about this fruit. And so Eve is acting on desire alone. On her desire alone, without factoring in what God has said. And so at this point, she is completely suppressing the truth of God's word, God's revelation to her and to Adam. And it's right here that sin exercises dominion. It begins to take rule and reign. If we are acting on desire alone, this is what I want. This is what seems right. This is what what feels right. We're in a dangerous place. Our desires must be shaped and informed by God's word. And so we must trust in the goodness of God's word. Even when, if you are in a position like Eve and you're looking at something and it looks good, it feels right, but it's contrary to God's word. Factor in God's word and act in faith in God's word. Believing that what God has said is right and true and good. Eve thought she'd be missing out. If I don't eat of this, I'll be missing out on something that I could have. I won't attain to something that I could attain to. Maybe God's withholding good from me. Maybe God's plan isn't best for me. But Eve didn't realize that of taking the fruit and eating it, all that was going to come on humanity. If we are acting on desire alone, it's like driving a car that has only a gas pedal. 
It's not going to end well. We need God's word to help check us, to help temper us, to inform us. Eve was deceived and and she ate and we read that she took and turned and gave to her husband and Adam ate and then we see the huge impact of sin, disobedience to what God has said. Look with me in verse 7. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We should read this with a great sadness. The eyes of both were opened. Well, isn't that a good thing? No. It's destruction. It's death that they were opened up to. They realize they're naked. They try to cover it. They hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And where before there was a desire for relationship and for intimacy and communication. Now there's a hiding There's a departure. There's a running away. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. I'll remind you, we recently went through Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's not in the fruit that God has forbidden, that pleasure or joy are to be found. It is an obedience to God's word where we can enjoy fellowship with God, where we can be in relationship with him. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. And you want pleasure forevermore? Not the fleeting pleasures of sin, which were found in Egypt in Moses' day and which we see in the world today? No, at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore, lasting, enduring, eternal pleasures. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the question and answer number one, what is it? The chief end of man. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To enjoy him forever. This is what we're created for. To enjoy God. And where we allow sin to come in, it robs us of joy. Where we allow sin to come in and we disobey God, it steals from us our purpose. Because no longer are we enjoying him, no longer are we glorifying him. And so this all begins to spiral down. They hide themselves when they hear the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God calls out, Adam, where are you? And in verse 10, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. 
He admits his fear. He confesses his nakedness and his shame. And God says, who told you that you were naked? When did this vocabulary word come in? Who taught you that word? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, verse 12, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We have this pattern now of shifting blame first from Adam to Eve. It's the woman And by the way, God, you gave her to me. So I think ultimately it's your fault. And then from Eve to the serpent. Well, the serpent deceived me. You see, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. It was Eve. No, it was was the serpent. Blame is to be anywhere but on me. And in verses 14 and 15, the Lord God curses the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We'll come back to that later. But the serpent is cursed. In verse 16, the impact of sin, the woman now, Eve, will have pain in childbearing. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. I wonder at this point if Eve is going, pain, what, what is pain? Oh, you'll know. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The fracture that is now present already in their relationship, this shifting of blame, Adam saying it's Eve's fault, Eve saying it's the serpent's fault, this fracture, because of sin, has started. It is only going to get worse The relationship between them is going to get more difficult. Your desire shall be for your husband or against your husband, and he shall rule over you. This isn't a good desire, a godly desire. This is to dominate, to rule over the husband. And then to Adam, verse 17 Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dead dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam is going to find great difficulty in work, where before they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, work was a delight. Work was something that they did in fellowship with God. 
It was something that they were able to, to enjoy and only enjoy. And now, work will be difficult. No longer will it be only delight. It will be full of toil and blisters and blood, thorns and thistles sticking into your hands, getting caught in your socks until Adam dies and then returns to the dust from which he was taken. And I want you to understand, church, that this wasn't only for Adam and Eve. These conditions continue to this day. If you've done any gardening, any landscaping, you can attest to this, right? You know it's hard. It's laborious. It's difficult. And it's going to continue until the new heavens and the new earth. And not only is there a curse on the physical world, but now this sinful nature that Adam welcomed in when he ate of the fruit, this sinful nature is also passed along. This is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5. We're not going to turn there this morning, but Romans chapter 5 is so important and key for us to understand. Adam came as the first man and as a representative, as head of all mankind. And when Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam. And because of Adam's guilt, we also are guilty And so now death has spread to all people through Adam. And Paul even says that everyone is condemned in Adam. That's the condition of the human race separated from God, condemned in sin and born in death. But Paul gives hope. Romans is the great gospel of grace. And Paul makes clear that just as Adam was our representative, was our head, so Christ also is representative and head for all those who trust him and put their faith in him and believe in the work that he has done and trust him for forgiveness of sins. That all might be condemned in Adam, but those who trust in Christ are no longer condemned, but are forgiven. And that is the gospel of grace. Time really doesn't allow this morning to express just how greatly impacted life is because of this first sin. But I I don't think I need to tell you. I think we experience this every day, don't we? When our bodies ache, it's a result of sin. When we get sick, it's a result of sin. When there's any kind of conflict in our marriage, It's a result of sin. 
When our children aren't perfect, it's a result of sin. When we aren't perfect, and we aren't ever, it's a result of sin. When we see the destruction even in the world, we see, we see storms that destroy things. We see fire that destroys things. All of that creation is even groaning and eagerly waiting for redemption that will come at the return of Christ. Everything in the Bible from this point on is about God's work in response to that sin to redeem and to reconcile. Everything. How many chapters did we make it in? Chapter 1, chapter 2, we got to chapter 3, and everything goes awry, and now all of this is about God working a work of redemption. And even as Seth alluded to or pointed out last week, even before chapter 3, God had this plan. This wasn't God rolling with the punches, trying to come up with plan B. No, he has his plan of redemption, and he is working it out. It is redemption, and then ultimately and finally, and we'll study this when we get to the book of Revelation, we see the consummation. We see the full realization of God's work of redemption. Redemption and reconciliation, and that is a work of grace covering sin. And that's where we're going to land this morning, is grace covering sin. I want you to see just how gracious God is toward Adam and Eve. Look at verse 9 with me. They ate of the fruit, they hear God walking, they've sewn fig leaves together, to try to cover their nakedness, they hear God and they run. And what is God's response? A thunderbolt? Just strike them with lightning and start over again. No. Verse 9, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? This isn't because Adam was the hide-and-seek king. And he was so good that God couldn't find him. No, God knew exactly where Adam was, but God is asking to draw him out. Again, in verse 11, God asks another question. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God is responding in grace to a heinous sin. God is responding in grace, drawing Adam out, drawing Adam back to him, back into relationship, back into conversation. And then four displays of God's grace that even speak to God's plan of redemption that I want to focus on with you. The first, I said we would come back to this, and that is in verse 15. As God curses the serpent, 
And in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman is to bruise the head of the serpent. Theologians understand this to be the first proclamation of the gospel in the Bible. We have it right here. The offspring of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. What's interesting is that Luke, as he goes through the genealogy of Jesus, how far back does he take it? All the way back to Adam and Eve. Because Jesus is this offspring of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent, who would crush Satan under his feet, which he did on the cross. And that's why theologians say this is the first proclamation of the gospel. It is pointing forward to what Jesus would ultimately do on the cross. And because Jesus had to die on the cross, that is why it says that the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. He would be bruised. He would be beaten. He would be laid in a tomb. But he would not be destroyed, Jesus. No, he rose again from the grave. So that's the first, the first display of God's grace that speaks to his plan of redemption. The second is in verse 20. If you'll look there with me. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. He called his wife's name Eve. This is really pretty incredible. After what they had just gone through, Eve gave the fruit to Adam, who apparently was with her as the serpent was enticing her and deceiving her. She turned and she gave to Adam. He took of the fruit and he ate. And then God says, what did you do? And Adam says, it was the woman that you gave me. But now he's naming the woman. And what does he name her? Not death, right? That's where you would, you would see this, this storyline going. Oh, she, we're going to call her death. Because of her, I ate. And now look at what has happened to humanity. But he calls her Eve because she was the mother of all living. Her name means life giver, living. This points back, I think, even to Genesis 3, verse 15, that through the seed of the woman, the head of the serpent would be crushed. Real life, true life, and eternal life would be coming through the woman. This is a display of grace from God, and I think it points forward as well to God's plan of redemption. 
And then next, in verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What did they do? They took fig leaves, they stitched them together to try to cover their nakedness. But now God knows that's not sufficient. And he makes for them garments of skin to clothe them. Where would garments of skin? These weren't pleather. They were the genuine article. This was real leather would have come from an animal. There would have been the sacrifice of an animal, the death of an animal in order to take this skin and make these coverings for Adam and for Eve. This is a foreshadowing of a sacrificial system that would be put in place for Israel through the death of animals Their sins would be covered over and ultimately pointing forward to the death of Jesus, who doesn't just cover over our sins, but through the death of Jesus that our sins are removed, not covering over, but removing our sin. And then lastly, in verses 22 through 24, The Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They're driven out from the garden and they are guarded from eating from the tree of life. And that is a display of God's grace. Now, having eaten of the fruit, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, death has entered in. This this knowing good and evil. And if they were to continue eating of the tree of life, God knows this is not a good thing, lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so God drives him out and God guards them from ever eating of this again. And it is grace that at this point in time, they are not allowed to eat from the tree of life. But there is a day that will come when they will eat again of the tree of life. And there is a day for you and for I that we also will be able to eat from the tree of life. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7 tells us that this tree of life is in the paradise of God. The tree of life is in the paradise of God. In Revelation chapter 22, we read that it's in the new Jerusalem, that it bears 12 kinds of fruit, and that it leave, its leaves are for the healing of the nations. And so God is pointing forward. God is pointing forward to his plan of redemption and restoration and of making all things right and good and true once again when we are able to be 
as Adam and Eve were originally, initially in the garden with God. And that is where God is carrying humanity. That is where God is working his plan toward that we will be back in that type of, of close fellowship, that we will be in the presence of God. We read in the book of Revelation that there won't even be need of sun, because the the glory of God will be light for us. And we will be there and partaking of the tree of life. Do you see, church, how God in his grace is working out his eternal plan of redemption? Even from this early point in the book of Genesis, and this early place in human history. We should learn from this that we cannot achieve perfection. If Adam and Eve couldn't do it, you and I cannot do it. And we cannot cover our own sins. They tried to make loincloths from fig leaves, and God knew insufficient. That is not enough. But God provided for them. He is full of grace. And this is how Paul says it in Romans 5, verses 20 and 21, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is where this story is going And we even see the thread of it here in Genesis chapter 3, that God is working his plan of redemption. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you how you have made so clear to us the plan that you have and the work that you are doing, your gracious plan of redemption, and that you have called, you have invited each and every one of us to find our place in that plan, in that story, in Jesus Christ. And I pray for all those who are here today that we would set our hope firmly upon Jesus Christ, not in our own efforts, not in our own attempts at righteousness, not in our efforts to try to cover our own sin. We would know the depth of our depravity, that we could never do enough. We could never be enough. We could never work hard enough. We could never pray enough. We could never confess enough. It is Jesus who took our place, who died for our sins, and in Jesus, we are in right standing with you. I pray that we would take hold of that truth, Lord God, that we would look to Jesus and be saved, and each and every day of our life, that we would see the grace that you have provided 
that we would be enthralled, that we would be enamored, that we would be invigorated in life because of the life that we have in Christ. I pray and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.